everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of July 4th, 2023. For all of you listeners in the United States, happy 4th of July. It's not a red, white, and blue drink, but I'm celebrating here with a sangria <laughs> margarita. Uh, it's Marvel. Hope that's not too... Yeah, it's one of these Marvel I- main... Uh, mugs at, at the Marvel restaurant that used to exist. Is where I well, that's this. good. I I also got to interject. July 1st was Canada Day. So to Canadians, happy Canada Day. So happy July 4th to you, my friend. And uh, yeah, it's, it was a, it's a good weekend. Good long weekend here. This is, I got, we Canadians got this Monday off for the, for the Canada Day long weekend. So Nice. Yeah. Canada Day for those in the U.S. that aren't familiar, <laughs> sort of the day Canada celebrates, like we celebrate July 4th, they celebrate July 1st. Uh, Canada Day, so our neighbors up north. Uh, and if anybody's watching us on YouTube, you'll notice Rocky rocking the Indiana Jones outfit. Uh, you know, it was a big weekend for Indiana Jones fans. The final installment of at least the Harrison Ford version of Indiana Jones uh, hit theaters. Yes. Uh, didn't do real well in terms of box office receipts, but, you know, in fairness, I, I didn't get a chance to go see it because I was on call for work. But in <laughs> fairness, I think that I think that Hollywood and, and the powers that be, they need to sort of rethink what is a successful film in terms of now that they're streaming and with inflation, you know, if you have a family of four, let's say, and between paying for the ticket and popcorn and snacks or whatever, you're out over a hundred bucks or you can wait four to six weeks and it's out on streaming. You watch it from the comfort of your own home. So I sort of think that they need to start, like they need to change where the the goal line is in terms of what a successful movie is, but I don't know. That's just me. Anyway, give us your thoughts, Rocky. I know Indy's one of your favorite uh, fictional characters. Uh, yeah. So what'd you think uh, of it? Well, first I want to say that uh, I did get the uh, I did get the uh, golden uh, the golden popcorn holder uh, filled yeah. with popcorn, and I overpaid. I think sixteen dollars for that. Uh, I my unfortunately my theater did not have the, uh, the 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 pop with the fedora hat, but I got I got an inside track on that. So hopefully somebody who goes will send me that fedora hat with the with the straw. I got an inside track on that. Hopefully I'll get that for my collection one day. But uh, look, there's a I want to give a quick synopsis on this. Uh, there's been an extraordinary amount of uh, a vast amount of negativity toward this movie on by. By, by most YouTube reviewers. So there's been a couple of positive ones. I'm more of the positive one. Uh, I can tell you that the audience scores at 88%. The critic scores at like 67 or 68 or something. And uh, it look, uh, I encourage people to go see this movie. If, uh, if I was to review this movie with the same uh, sort of passion that I oh, that you and I review DC Comics, could I play script doctor? You bet. Were there some would I would I've taken a different approach to where Indy is at in his life and the circumstances that he finds himself in at the beginning of this movie? Yes, I would. But it starts off with a scene from the past in the early 1950s with him fighting Nazis. It's it's a fantastic scene. It's fun. It's adventurous. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I didn't mind her character at all. Uh, her particular character arc, she is supposed to be annoying in parts. So I don't know the complaint that she's too annoying a character. I, I thought it was a little bit odd. Uh, but I clearly appear to be in the minority on that. But I had a lot of fun with this movie. This movie ends on a high note. Uh, this movie ends it did put a smile on my face 
Uh, in uh, Harrison Ford wanted to be playing older. He's an 80-year-old actor playing a 70-year-old Indiana Jones. <laughs> and yes, it does show a little bit, but he's still, he's still uh, at the end of the day, he's still a hell of an action hero for his age. And it worked. Uh, it was, there was touching moments. There was, uh, there was touching moments that I, I thought could, you know, uh, could, could bring a little bit of a tear to your eye if you're so inclined. And uh, there is, I, I, the plot, the plot is ex- extraordinarily fantastical as, uh, as, as ghosts coming out of the Holy Grail uh, and uh, as, as aliens, you know, in in the last movie and it's a lot of fun i would i would definitely encourage people please go to see this judge for yourself uh whether or not you like this movie because everyone who was in the theater that i was at uh i asked them i spoke to them as we were leaving the theater it was a it was a three-quarters pack theater which is more than the flash which was an i guess another bomb but this was a fun movie and i really encourage people to go and see it because even if you don't like where indiana jones is at in this movie it's there's still a lot of fun to be had here you know and so i'm just i i could be more uh, defensive of this movie i i feel very it's sad that i have to be so defensive of it because the negativity on this everyone is is talking more about uh, Kathleen, whether Kathleen Kennedy is going to get fired and uh, talking about, you know, Harrison Ford's per choices and per advice and leading up to this movie and the, and the Cannes Film Festival, then, then the movie itself. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's a movie that I think deserves uh, go and have some fun with this movie. And, uh, you know, I, I realize movies are expensive, but, you know, there's there were certainly a, more than a few families with the theater that I was at, and they seemed to really enjoy the movie. So I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I am biased. I am an Indiana Jones fanatic. I do dress up like Indiana Jones at Comic-Cons, as those watching on YouTube can plainly see. I got, I even got a whip here in case, uh, in case somebody tries to, you know, sabotage my computer as we're recording this. And uh, so, no, it's good. I, I enjoyed the movie, and I, I, I hope. I'm curious to hear your thoughts once you see it, too. Yeah, I uh, probably, I mean, I only ever saw Crystal Skull once in the theater. <laughs> I enjoy it. I, pr- I probably need a rewatch of all of them before I go see Dial of Destiny. Um, yeah. Yeah, the biggest, I mean, don't get me wrong. The first one is one of my favorite movies of all time, but the rest are just kind of, uh, whatever. One was enough for me. <clears throat> but anyway, yeah, I did. I, I've heard from people I trust that have liked it. And I've heard from people I trust that didn't like it, the pacing issues and what have you. So yeah. probably, you know, somewhere in the middle, but. I think if you're a fan of Indiana Jones, you probably uh, probably enjoy it. So, yeah. with that being said, let's dive into the DC books for the week. The Night Terrors event that is lasting for the months of July and August is underway. Sort of a strange feeling uh, because other than the free comic book day and then a few hints and a few books, there hasn't been a lot of um, like lead up to this to have it be this line wide event, right? And and that's what's sort of interesting. We've had so many events that were supposed to be huge game changers for DC, whether it be death metal, you could argue about whether or not that was successful. And certainly Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths, you know, the most recent one. And we could talk about some of the smaller events like War for Earth 3 that really were very siloed. But when you talk about something like um, Dark, Cri- uh, what is it? Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths, I think was the yeah. full title. That, that's something that was supposed to affect the DC line going forward, completely leading to the dawn of DC and how, and we talked about it at the time, you know, the justice league are supposed to supposedly be dead, but Batman's still in his book, Superman's still in the book, Wonder Woman's still in the, her book. They're all still showing up. 
it wasn't re didn't even though it was huge and it was supposed to be this you know universe changing event it didn't really affect the other books until the aftermath and then even then it was like talked about and exposition heavy and what have you with this event the entire dc universe is asleep both superheroes non-superheroes super like the just about everybody with a few exceptions like damian wayne and peacekeeper one everybody is asleep like this event somehow is sort of more important like it doesn't it doesn't really make sense. So, okay, okay, Jace, whatever. It doesn't mean everybody's going to be asleep in whatever the regular books, right? Well, that's that leads me to my next point. There are no regular books. There are is no regular Batman. There is no regular Superman. There is no regular anything. Everything is Night Terrors, colon, whatever the book is. Night Terrors Batman. Night Terrors Wonder Woman. Night Terrors Superman. So it's like, in some ways, this is like a more impactful event than anything we've had from DC since I can, maybe since Rebirth, which I was thinking the other day about how successful, for the most part, Rebirth was. There are a few misfires, and it was, I totally blame editorial. Superwoman is one. Like, Phil Jimenez, I spoke, I've spoken to him about it. He was so passionate for that title. And, like, two issues in, everything that he had pitched was thrown out, and they said, no, you have to do this. And that's why he left after only, like, eight issues. It's just terrible. But for the most part, it was successful, right? Certainly that DC Rebirth one-shot with Wally coming back and it was emotional and fans loved it. That was seven years ago. Like DC, what have you done for me lately in terms of giving me a good event, building up some goodwill? This feels like a misstep to me. DC is just, it's not, it's not horror. DC, the DC universe to me is not horror. Um, so this feels like a bit of a misstep. Um, and you know, frankly, I wasn't looking forward to it. Haven't been looking forward to it. Uh, don't have very high expectations at all. And we'll talk about whether even those low expectations I had were met or not. But I will say there's one positive. I'm buying so few DC books this month and next month. Like my pull list is tiny, not spending much money. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's a good thing. So anyway, give us your thoughts on the event overall, Rocky. And uh, if you want, you can dive into the first issue, Night Terror's First Blood, number one, uh, which is kind of the, the first kickoff bookend. Uh, if you would like to, you know, name it that. It's written by Joshua Williamson. The art in it is by Howard Porter. Uh, let me get the rest of the credits in front of me so I can uh, give everybody the credit they deserve. Uh, Brad Anderson handles the colors, Troy Petrie on letters. Um, so what are your thoughts on the event overall in this first issue? Uh, well, overall, I do want to – I did a thumbnail of, of just some of the Midnight Variant covers. And even though I, I do – I'm like you. I'm actually not – I, I was I was not planning on getting actually the entire event. I was going to literally not buy a DC com a physical copy of a DC comic for the for the two months. But I broke down when I saw the midnight variants. Even I just I think they're kind of cool, and so I'm doing a cover buy. And I know I'm a hypocrite. I've admitted to being a hypocrite before. I bitch about variant covers all the time. But yeah, I'm getting all the midnight variant covers. <laughs> Some of them I think might be if they're a ratio variant. I, I don't get them, but. The, the midnight variant covers that are just variants that are a regular cover price that we'll be picking up. And I do think they're going to look kind of cool. And maybe at some point I'll put them on my back shelf and I'll show them off at some point because I think it'll look pretty cool when I get them all. Uh, having said that, I do find it uh, – comments about the Night Terrors event in general, I do find it a little bit interesting that – or rather just maybe a poor choice to have a, a Halloween event – in the middle of summer, this this doesn't feel like it should be a summer event, like a, a horror story through the course of the summer. It just feels it just just doesn't feel appropriate. Maybe it's just maybe it's just where I'm at, but I love summer. 
summer's a fun time. It's a, it's the weather's great. I, I do family stuff. I, I just love it. And seeing, reading my DC comics and it's, it's all depression ridden horror and all the nightmares of all the heroes. And most of these heroes, maybe because I'm a longtime reader, I kind of feel I already know what their worst fears are anyway. It feels like we've kind of been there and done this before. And, 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 um, so I, I I read this first batch, and we'll, we're going to get into it right now, but I read this first batch of uh, Night Terrors with uh, extremely low expectations. And I will say, as low as my expectations were, this actually is slightly higher. This is These are slightly better than my very, very low expectations. Slightly better, except for one, which we'll get into. But I... Um, I Joshua Williamson, who is the lead writer on this, and we'll get in, we'll start reviewing uh, Night Terror's First Blood, number one, uh, written by, uh, you said Joshua Williamson, Howard Porter is the artist, and uh, Brad Anderson is the artist. Uh, this is, uh, this this really sets up the premise of the story. You've got, we've got some uh, really nice uh, variant covers by various artists. I can't name them all, but there is a whole slew of covers that you can get here, including the Midnight Variant, uh, which I already showed. And basically, the premise of this story is it, it centers around Dr. Destiny, the secret, the identity of Dr. Destiny, who is a Justice League villain. Uh, his, his real name is John D. This series starts off with John D. having a dream himself, and he's dreaming about his own family, how much he loves his own family. And John D., Dr. Destiny, who has the ability to essentially manipulate nightmares and create nightmares, he's actually having a pleasant dream about his own family. But some something infects Dr. Destiny. Something infects him himself and uh, causes uh, very clearly something sort of infects him. And, and we're not sure exactly who or what that is, but we know that ultimately it's revealed to be this character named in, in Insomnia that, we, that you, we end up meeting at the, at the end of this series. This Insomnia is looking for the Nightmare Stone, and the Nightmare Stone is something that is normally that Dr. Destiny has control of. And this Nightmare Stone, apparently with this, this ability that Insomnia has, using this Nightmare Stone can create a hell of a lot of havoc on the world. Now, the premise of this entire opening issue, which has been in solicits before this and hinted at before, is the Trinity ends up, the Trinity ends up going to the Hall of Justice. And uh, going to the Hall of Justice uh, is, uh, well, prior to that, Dead Man, Boston Brand, Dead Man is sort of, we get an introduction to Dead Man. We get sort of an origin of Dead Man, Boston Brand. He's someone who was was killed, and then uh, the the Kama, the I think it was the Kama Sutra brought him back, and he's now he wanders the land of the living as a dead spirit ghost, and he can possess he can possess the living for temporary periods of time. Dead Man senses something is wrong. He senses that the Trinity is haunted, and that the Hall of Justice is haunted, and something is amiss. And when Superman and Wonder Woman uh, and Batman, when they make their way to the Hall of Justice, Dead Man can clearly see that something is wrong. And when they enter the Hall of Justice, Batman and and Superman, Wonder Woman, they come across what appears to be the, the corpse of Dr. Destiny, this John D. And it's uh, it's it's very graphic. So Howard Porter, I got to give credit to Howard Porter. He's not I'm not a fan of his style of art. But I got to give him credit here. He does a really good job. 
he does a really good job making me feel that this is a horror story because there is a horrific element <laughs> to his art. And I mean that in, as a compliment. And it looks like John D is dead. And, and But it ends up, this is not John D. This is actually a dream construct of John D. And John D is actually uh, in Arkham Asylum, the, the real body of John D is at Arkham Asylum, uh, which... Uh, where Harley Quinn is at the moment, and this John D, the actual body of John D, is possessed and is being uh, infected by this otherworldly force, which will ultimately be revealed to be insomnia. But uh, very clearly, what's happening is that this force is putting people to sleep, and it's and their worst nightmares are becoming real, and it's it's interesting, uh, and in in. Dead Man wants to warn the Trinity what's happening, and the only way he can do that is that he possesses Batman. Batman doesn't like Dead Man, uh, probably because Batman doesn't like to deal with death and magic in general. Uh, but Dead Man possesses Batman. Uh, he sort of lets the Trinity in that you know something is going wrong here. The, the connections between death and magic and and uh, and dreams. So the nightmares, dreams, and death. The connections between those two are tenuous and it's magic based and it's metaphysically based and a bunch of chaos is being created. So Wonder Woman goes to talk to Satana. Batman flies off to Ar uh, wants to run off to Arkham Asylum and Superman wants to go to Supercore to see what he can find out through Star Labs, see if there's any a scientific element, anything scientific. They want to cover the gambit of the magic, the science and, and the detective work. And so the Trinity has got what you hope they're going to have everything covered. But it ends up that that's not the case. Uh, Superman literally fly, falls asleep while flying to Metropolis. And uh, Wonder Woman is, she meets up with Zatanna and Bibbo, the detective chimp of uh, Justice League Dark. And Wonder Woman and the detective chimp, they end up falling asleep, leaving uh, Zatanna by herself. And Batman himself comes across, uh, ends up also falling asleep himself and getting lost in the dream realm. Uh, while he's having the dream of himself as a young Bruce Wayne, and Dead Man possesses the body of Batman, so at least in the in the real waking world, Batman is still up and at him and fighting, but being controlled by Dead Man himself. So, uh, it's it's um, it's it's a good setup. I'll I'll, I'll say this, and it, the issue does ends with insomnia revealing himself. He says, I'm going to make the heroes pay for what they did to me. Who is insomnia? What, what did the heroes do in the past to insomnia that he wants to make them pay? This insomnia character clearly has manipulated and um, Dr. Destiny, John D, uh, in order to take control of the dream realm and also is looking for a nightmare stone in order to wreak further havoc on the world. And the all these one-shots, uh, these these comic books, these one shot or these first of two issues of the various comics we'll be reviewing today. All the heroes uh, from Black Adam, Ravager, Batman, they're all looking uh, within their dreams. Insomnia is looking for the nightmare stone. And that's sort of the premise. So it's sort of like a scavenger hunt which is always kind of a sort of a cop-out, easy event thing. You see, you, see, you see scavenger hunts as the basis of plot lines in many comic books where bad guys or good guys are on the hunt for something. In this case, the, they're hunting the bad guy, Insomnia, and his sleepless nights are looking for the Nightmare Stone. And exactly how or why that comes about, where, you know, that's, that's going to be the point of the stories we're getting into. And so it's a, it's a decent enough premise and so I think the setup here is 
is in you know it's it's good enough it's but it's not i wouldn't say it's treading new ground i'm not completely interested in this setup issue per se although i will say in defense of joshua williamson at least it's better than dark crisis in so far as i think the plot line is is much easier to follow but what i find ironic here is where dark crisis was too convoluted a storyline that joshua williamson didn't get much of a handle on it i i think that this this uh uh night terrors is almost too simplistic a storyline basically it's a it's a guy who's makes the world fall asleep and is looking for the nightmare stone as everybody falls asleep and he's he, you know, this insomnia has given them all nightmares. So it's a simple premise and it can be very, very effective. Simple stories work if, if they're, if, if the individual character arcs are important. So if, if, if in the individual titles, we learn something new and interesting about Batman through what he fears, that's interesting. If for Ravager, for Black Adam. So, uh, so this allows for potential character work for the writers to really shine and tell us something new about these characters from a different perspective that maybe we haven't heard before. The question is, are the writers up to task? And that's what we'll get into. But uh, what are your thoughts on this opening issue, uh, uh, First Blood? Yeah, so you're right about Howard Porter's art. Like it suits the fact that this is a horror story, right? Like I'm not the biggest fan of, of Porter style these days. Um, and it's interesting, like, don't get me wrong. Howard Porter is immensely talented and visually, you know, he's a good storyteller. We know, and, and I don't know the details. I apologize for that, but I know he, he had an accident at one point and they, there was a possibility he wasn't, wasn't going to be able to, to ever draw again. And the fact that this guy still works at such a high level and tells such a good story is a credit to you know his tenacity and his passion for for art and for drawing comics you know because um, we all know you know it's not the it's not the quickest way to get rich drawing comic books um, but that being said yeah um, you kind of wonder would his art style be the same as it is now if you know he hadn't gotten an accident I mean I think back when I think Howard Porter the first thing that comes to mind is like that classic cover of JLA first issue right and, and that doesn't resemble anything of what his art looks like now his art now is much looser much more sketchy much more visceral and then you could take that to an even greater extreme when you start talking about the the way it looks in this book and you know i have to say that in terms of a horror book it's kind of fit it kind of fits right in with that that style of, of you know what you would expect from a horror book uh, what you would expect it to look like. So I don't, I don't mind it in terms of what the tone of the story is from that aspect. That being said, I, I don't care for this art at all because I don't care for the story. The tone of the story and the art go hand in hand, but I'm not a fan of the tone of the story and I'm not a fan of this art. Um, it, it just like, you know, you were mentioning to have this come out in the summer sort of the lack of lead up who's this insomnia character for this being the bookend. Yeah. It sets up what's happening in the book, you know, so to speak in terms of, Hey, you know, dead man's involved and yes, there's this insomnia and everybody's asleep. But beyond that, we're really not told that much. And, and in a way, the story is almost a showcase for Porter's art. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing because Porter's art looks pretty good. Uh, you know, for the most part. So 
I, I sort of have mixed mixed feelings about it in terms of yes, I would recommend this to people that like horror. But as a longtime DC fan, I, this is not what I want from DC Comics, you know. And I know horror has sort of become in vogue, I guess you'd say, in a lot of ways. Um, horror books seem to be doing really, really well. Um, but I just don't think the DC universe is the right place for horror right now. Um, and this feels like it doesn't really get rolling, but the way that DC structures their events now, it's like, okay, we're, we're told about this insomnia character. You know, we're, we're told a lot of things. We're not necessarily shown, but they're, they're, there's not like a spine series where you're going to go and read this. Instead, it's it's like future state in a lot of ways, right? Like we get this this first blood series, and then we're going to go and read a bunch of different um, series, you know, two issue series, focused on either Superman or Joker or Batman or whomever with whatever their nightmare is. And like you were saying, we kind of know these characters at this point, so this is not treading new ground. Uh, so why why should I care? Um, again, is it just a, a, a means to showcase art? Cause this isn't the only book that had art that I didn't like. That seems it's going to be a theme. You're going to hear me talk about the, the art, how well it suits the tone of these individual books and how much I dislike it. It's just, you know, that's my personal, personal choice. Um, and as far as it not being original, yeah, I mean, <laughs> any MacGuffin hunt, like I think back to the very first five part GI Joe, two hour cartoon, uh, it was five part, you know, that came on uh, during the week, you know, whatever, after school cartoons, or it would be, uh, you know, a 90 minute movie watching it. And it was G.I. Joe and Cobra racing to go get it, whatever. That was like my first real picture to like a story where it was all about, like you said, scavenger hunt, but, you know, I'll say, say MacGuffin or whatever, this magical item. In this case, it's the Nightmare Stone. They can be fun. They're, yeah, they're not original, but they can be fun. This... I don't know. So far, this doesn't seem like it's going to be much fun. But, um, but it has Amanda Waller in it. You know what? Did, did you? <laughs> Sorry. Don't even, bring, don't even bring her up. I, I don't want to. So, but that's so what makes it even more of a horror is that Amanda Waller's in it. You know. Yeah, let's move on to um, – and again, we're going um, – we're not going in any particular order. Even if you look in the back of these books, there is a checklist for the event. Um we're not going in uh, in any particular order only because it doesn't really matter other than you probably should read that first blood issue first. But beyond that, it probably doesn't matter what order you read, read stuff in. So uh, we'll talk about black Adam next. Uh, and, you know, this is on the heels of the, the black Adam 12 issue maxi series that Rocky and I both really love from Christopher priest. This Night Terror Black Adam one is written uh, and illustrated by Jeremy Hahn. Colors are by Nick Filardi. Letters are by Troy Petrie. This is a really quick quick read. Uh, you sort of throw out everything you thought you knew about Black Adam in a lot of ways in terms of what you had previously, right, with Teth Adam and Black Adam being two separate individuals. I just – I guess nobody cares <laughs> that that was a story. I'm not really sure. But it doesn't it doesn't matter. Um, that's all set aside. And so we're basically getting what would Black Adam's nightmare be, but but less so rather than what everybody else is is talking about, uh, you know, like kind of have an idea what what um, 
Batman's nightmare is going to be, what Joker's nightmare is going to be, what Superman's nightmare is going to be. Uh, it's sort of, you know, at, at one point in the story, you sort of think, okay, well, I guess Black Adam's nightmare is that he is scared of losing his powers. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't real clear to me what his nightmare was. He does lose his powers at one point, then he gets them back. Um, so maybe it's just this idea that he's not going to be able to protect himself. Uh, I did think that this art was cleaner uh, than a lot of the other um, night terrors issues that came out this month. So from, from that perspective, I did like it a little bit more. Um, but this was a quick read and not much happened, uh, to be honest. So, yeah, it, it wasn't anything to write home about. I could recommend it based just on, on the artwork because, again, I thought the artwork was pretty solid. But there's kind of no point in reading this if you're not going to read the rest of the Night Terror stuff, too. And that's another th problem I sort of have with the the event is it, it's kind of one of those events where it feels like, well, you better be all in or all out. So uh, anyway, what do you think of uh, this Black Adam issue? I, I thought it was a missed opportunity. And, you know, we just came off what I thought was a pretty decent Black Adam series by Christopher Priest that did it. He did a, uh, while it was a convoluted story over the 12 issues, Christopher Priest, I thought, did a, a very interesting, he, it ended on a high note. Black Adam and Teth Adam are two separate entities now. And writer Jeremy Hahn here had an opportunity, uh, and I realize this, he would have had to have known in advance what the ending of the of Christopher Priest's Black Adam run was going to be, but I, how much more interesting this story could have been had this been just a story about Teth Adam's nightmare? Or what does the separated Black, Black Adam entity, separate from Teth Adam, what's his worst nightmare? What's Teth Adam's worst nightmare? We have some idea because we've read Christopher Priest's uh, 12 issue Black Adam series. Black Adam, Teth Adam, is going through a hell of a lot of uh, insecurity right now. He's given up the mantle of Black Adam because he, he wants, he's going or he's almost on a redemption quest. He feels guilty for his role as Black Adam. What other nightmares does he have? Now, there were hints here that Jeremy Hahn has, knows something about Black Adam's history. In particular, we know that he knows the, the, the new 52 story regarding Isis and Osiris, where Black Adam marries, uh, essentially marries Isis and Isis's brother, uh, Amon, uh, who becomes Osiris, is killed by uh, Sobek, the, the humanoid lizard. And there, he has a dream here of them, uh, of Sobek uh, eating, his, uh, eating his brother, uh, his uh, eating his uh, his brother-in-law, and but what what Jeremy Hahn is missing in this issue is there's no there's almost no exposition. Jeremy Hahn is both the writer and the artist here, so I, I don't know. So much more should have been explained. It's not explained that that is that's got to be Amon or pardon me, uh, Amon who is being eaten by Sobek. There, it's not even explained who that crocodile creature is. Unless you're a longtime reader of Black Adam, you're not going to know what's happening here that this is actually, he's watching clearly one of his nightmare scenarios when Isis was killed by Pestilence, one of the four, uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse. That devastated Black Adam. He's watching Isis and Osiris get killed again. So that's the nightmare. So clearly that's a nightmare that I can acknowledge. So Jeremy Hahn does know something of Black Adam's past. But in fairness, how many, that, you know, that, that New 52 Black Adam story, that came out in 2006. How many people have been reading Black Adam since 2006? I suspect I'm in the minority. So uh, this, should have been, this should have been more 
spelled out in, in, with exposition. Jeremy Hunt's a good writer. He wrote a fantastic image series called Beauty, which is just fantastic. So I know he's got the writing chops for it. I just, in fairness to him, I don't know if maybe he, I'm not sure where, uh, where he was, what he wants to say about this. I'm not sure exactly what Black Adam's nightmare is here, but there's no doubt here that maybe at the end, this is all Teth Adam's dream. So I'm trying to reconcile this with the Christopher Priest 12 issue stories. Maybe this entire issue is just Teth Adam having a nightmare, but the way it's going, it's very clearly separating Teth Adam. He changes back from black Adam into Teth Adam. Clearly this was written. It's very hard to look, read this issue and reconcile it with what's gone on in uh, Priest's uh, black Adam run. And so I found it to be, uh, fairly empty. I didn't mind the art, but I found it to be a, a fairly empty and it's not going to tell us much about Black Adam that we don't already know. And it was a huge missed opportunity to not explore and to carry on and to address what, you know, what is a nightmare to somebody like Teth Adam who's been separated from his Black Adam? Tell me what that nightmare is. I think that's such a huge missed opportunity there. So um, this was, this was very much a, this was, I was looking forward to this the most and this is the most disappointing comic this week for me, sadly. Yeah, it, it's clear that editorial didn't tell Jeremy Hahn anything about Christopher Priest's Black Adam run because this complete, completely ignores it, completely. Yeah. And, you know, you and I were both so excited to get more of, of that story. Well, this this isn't it. This is not it, everybody. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, let's move on. Night Terror's Ravager number one. Uh Really interesting choice to go with Ravager to carry on the Deathstroke story, I guess. We haven't gotten a whole heck of a lot of Deathstroke since um, since Dark Crisis ended. I, I will say, I think it's the Jeff uh, Spokes 1 in 50 variant cover that is terrifying where uh, Rose takes her mask off and she's like half skeleton. It's super... Super creepy. Yeah, there it is there. If you're watching us on YouTube, just whew, that'll give you nightmares for sure. Yeah. Uh, this one did feel a little different. Uh, written by Ed Brisson, Dexter Soy's the artist, Veronica Gandini on colors, Troy Peachy on letters. Um, you know, Dexter Soy has worked with Brisson on, on Deathstroke recently, so not a surprise to see him here. And the art I felt like was, was pretty solid. He, it does feel not quite as clean uh, as his art usually does. But again, you kind of expect that, right? And certainly the colors from Veronica Gandini feel like they're trying to, to you know, instill, instill horror feel. So uh, I think from that perspective, it's it's pretty interesting. The other thing that's interesting is, is this one feels a little more personal um, than a lot of the others with Rose and what happens with her um, as opposed to the others, which kind of, feel paint by the numbers this one it's the idea of some of these nightmares trying to break into the real world and maybe every maybe that's going to be a, a theme it's not really well established in the other issues but it is established here when rose you know enters this nightmare she is asleep ravager is asleep in the real world um and we see this is where the the issue where we find peacekeeper one so live Stormwatch. you know ravager is part of Stormwatch. That's also written by Ed Brisson, so we are sort of following um, along with, with themes and story and plot points that have been established before, so I appreciated that as well. Um, but this idea of, of Rose being a bridge, right? She meets uh, a version of herself 
some nightmare construct that's actually turns out impersonating her um, and pretending to, to, you know, to be her when, you know, we find out, yeah, it's really just this, um, this construct. It's not really her. And she wants to use Rose as a bridge to uh, everybody into the, uh, into the real world, so to speak. So pretty interesting. Um, But again, not, not a lot of substance there. And especially for the way that she sort of dragged out, like you didn't find out to the last few pages that it, it was a construct and everything was fake. And so, yeah, it was, again, it's just okay. It's not treading any new ground. It's yeah, it's just okay. So um, I don't know, Rocky, what'd you think? Well, as far as Rose Wilson, the ravager, as far as her sort of the, the exploration of her character in this particular issue, uh, it, it it wasn't bad. She's juxtaposed against sort of a nightmare version of herself called Rose Madison. She's Rose Wilson, and then she meets this Rose Madison, a young girl that looks just like she did when she was younger. And Rose Madison's father is this nightmare person called the Murder Man. And so right away you see kind of the similarities if you know anything about the Ravager. The Ravager's father is Deathstroke. Deathstroke murders people, a nightmare version of Deathstroke. You can imagine him being called the murder man. Rose Madison, the nightmare version of Rose Wilson, the ravager. Well, her father is the murder man. And the murder man essentially wants, is looking for a conduit or looking for a bridge. And the I, I want to give compliments to Ed Brisson here because he did some interesting misdirection here. As you're reading the story, you think that Rose Wilson, you think that Ravager is the bridge herself, that if they kill Ravager, maybe that that'll be the bridge to bring the murder man and his slaughter squadron, these nightmare creatures, into the waking world. But they need a conduit in order to do so. Uh, and as it turns out, the actual, um, and, and or, uh, actually, uh, um, uh, sorry, I, I was wrong. It was misdirection. We thought you thought this Rose Madison was this was the conduit, but it was actually Ravager herself is the conduit that they need to essentially, I guess, kill in the nightmare. If you die in your dream, and then maybe well, she's she, we know that she's asleep in the real world. World, she's been rendered unconscious in the real world, and so. Ravager herself is the conduit in order to bring the murder man and the slaughter squadron into this world. And I thought it was very well done. I liked the dialogue. I, I liked Rose. I like Rose Wilson's conversation with her sort of nightmare self uh, count or her nightmare <laughs> uh, mirror opposite. I thought it was it. You learn something about Rose Wilson. People who aren't familiar with Ravager, you're going to learn something about Ravager. People who aren't familiar with her past are going to learn something about her, how she feels about her father, Deathstroke, and about his count, his his mirror image being like the murder man. I mean, it's it it was interesting. Ed Brisson, we, Ed Brisson did the uh, sort of like the dawn of the DCU new or new origin of Deathstroke, and so Ed Brisson knows what he's doing here, and it shows. He's also writing uh, the Stormwatch backup and Batman: Brave and the Bold, and it's very good here because the character Peacekeeper One shows up at the end, and basically and. Peacekeeper wants to wake up Ravager and and Control is telling him, no, don't wake her up. We don't know what we're dealing with. And that was very good advice because something tells me that the minute Ravager wakes up, if you fall asleep, now this is what I'm guessing. And my guess is as the world falls asleep and they enter the nightmare realm, it's when they wake up, if they wake up, they can bring whatever they whatever was in the nightmare realm can follow them out. 
but I'm I'm guessing that not everyone in the world is a conduit like Ravager is. Maybe only certain heroes and villains are. And so that's interesting. So maybe these this insomnia and his sleepless nights, they're they're very, very powerful in the nightmare realm, but in order to fully come out of the nightmare realm, they need this nightmare stone and they maybe need some other conduits to help enter our waking world. This is me just sort of guessing, but the, the, the remnants of a story here and trying to find the connections between <laughs> the main story and here are starting to come through. If I have one criticism and this criticism I'm, I'm going to maintain as we review all these, uh, all of these night terrors is that if at the beginning of all these night terror stories, and I've read a few that are coming out next week and the week after. The reality is, is that they're all talking about everyone's looking for the nightmare stone. That insomnia is looking for the nightmare stone. In almost very few of these stories, is anyone actually looking for the nightmare stone? They reference it. Some even talk about it. Most don't even talk about it. We, we, we don't know anything about the nightmare stone in Black Adam back up this one. And so... On the one hand, this is maybe some sort of scavenger hunt for the Nightmare Stone. But on the other hand, no one's really looking for it or appears to be looking for it. They're only giving lip service to it. So I hope this, we're getting some decent character work here. This is one of the better, this is one of the better Night Terror comics out of any that will come out over the, this week or the next week, in my opinion, this Ravager story. So if you don't like this Ravager story, you're probably not going to like Night Terrors, in my opinion. But uh you know, this was one of the better ones and uh, compliments to Ed Brisson, who uh, did his homework. Yeah, I, I agree. This is going to be one of the better ones. And yeah, interesting theory about if Rose really is the bridge. So interesting choice editorially. Uh, if she's the key, like people don't really think of Rose Wilson as, you know, this really important character in the, you know, DC history or DC universe. So that's, yeah, that's an interesting thought if, if she's really that important so uh all right up next poison ivy um written by g willow wilson the art is really again sort of str strange choices everybody's eyes are super big it's brightly colored which is interesting uh and the color artist is Arif prianto so written by g willow wilson ataguan ilhan does the pencils mark morales on inks hassan utzman elhow does the letters. Uh, and, and as you might expect, the nightmare that, uh, that Poison Ivy has is to live in this idyllic suburban um, sort of setting with Harley, you know, as her partner and Batman lives next door with Selena Kyle. And yeah, so really strange in a lot of ways. Um, uh, yeah, it was just, Really, really strange, but not breaking new ground here with what Poison Ivy would consider her her dream house is the way that she puts it. Um, so again, I, I just I, I sort of didn't see what the point was, and in terms of of artwork or what have you, it's just sort of the typical body horror kind of horror schlock. It felt very paint by the numbers, and I didn't really. I don't want to say I didn't see the point, but it just, it didn't, it wasn't special. I'll just put it that way. So, um, I don't know. Maybe you feel differently, Rocky. What what do you think of it? Well, you know, it's funny. On the last page of this opening, uh, Poison, uh, Night Terrors, Poison Ivy number one, uh, 
for the solicits for the next issue, or it says next, I hope you've had a pleasant evening. And for that reason, I, I kept thinking of that movie Pleasantville. And uh, the movie Pleasantville is a movie that takes place in black and white. And it's, it's, in, a, it's in a 1950s idea, idyllic setting, just like the setting here in this Poison Ivy uh, Night Terrors issue. And as the people of Pleasantville start to, uh, start to be less perfect, the, the, there's color. Color begins to appear. And as they got, get more emotional, the black and white movie eventually becomes a color movie as they get their emotions. And it's very brilliantly done. And what I find interesting here is that in this story, you know, Poison Ivy is, you know, she doesn't, all of a sudden she wakes up, she's in this perfect home. It's a perfect neighborhood. I, uh, she's there with Harley. Harley kind of looks a little bit odd and, but Harley always looks odd, but you know, Poison Ivy puts up with it because she likes, she loves Harley and she's prepared to What's extraordinary here, and what I'm going to give Jay Willow Wilson some credit for is uh, she portrays, she scripts Poison Ivy as some, Pamela Isley as someone who's prepared to put up with a lot of horror, things that Pamela finds horrific. Pamela Isley is willing to put up with a lot of what she considers horrific things, i.e. this Pleasantville-like town, just because she loves Harley. If Harley loves it, I'll stay here for Harley. She even says that. And I find that interesting. And that does say something. There's some character work there as well. Just how far will Poison Ivy go and sacrifices she will make personally just if she thinks it will make Harley happy. Now, what's interesting here is, um, you know, what is a dream house at one point? You know, uh, J. Willow Wilson, the, the narrator states, what is a dream house? A reflection equal and opposite of whatever we're trying to escape. And it's interesting, po- the, the reasons why Poison Ivy finds this to be a horrific setting is that oh, the lawn looks perfect, but it's, it has pesticides in it. So somehow that's horror. And it's, it's so funny in so many ways. This doesn't look like a horrific setting at all. Uh, and yet Poison Ivy seems more upset when, when Batman ends up being her neighbor. Batman and Selina are her neighbors and she freaks out. And you really get a sense that Poison Ivy does not like Batman. She's got a Batman hang up there in a way that she's fearful of having Batman close at all because she associates Batman with losing Harley and losing herself and losing her freedom, which I suppose is rightly so. Although I will say that Batman, I don't know, Poison Ivy maybe doesn't know this, but lately Batman has a penchant has a penchant for letting bad guys get away with things. You know, he lets Cat- Catwoman do whatever she wants, you know, kill somebody, you know, go to jail, escape, you know, Harley Quinn, no problem. You know, as long as Harley helps me out, she can psychotically do what she wants. I mean, if, you know, Penguin, you know, I mean, he forgiven Catwoman for Penguin taking off and letting Penguin relocate. Uh, So uh, I don't know if this is necessarily as horrific as Poison Ivy would, uh, (laughs) would think of it, but it's, it's, I found it interesting from a Pleasantville kind of view when I thought of it in terms of the movies, just how Poison Ivy, she loves Harley so much. Her She's got an Ivy-centered world and one that's based on color and beauty and when and any 
it's the sad part is, is that any memory of her past life other than Harley, whether it's Selena or Batman or, any, or the Penguin showing up and Nightwing and Batgirl showing up on a bike at, at the end, she just, that seems to cause horror for her. She, it's almost as if Poison Ivy's idea of horror and her worst nightmare is the Batman family other than Harley herself. So I don't know. I, I thought it was interesting. I think, I think Jay Willow Wilson has something to say and I'm, uh, maybe I'll get more an idea of what that is at the, the, the next issue in this, uh, in this Night Terrors chapter. Yeah. And one thing I want to point out is there's a lot of times throughout both books that we've already talked about and other issues that we've yet to talk about where the, the characterization of these characters doesn't always feel like it's accurate, right? Like Rocky was just saying uh, in terms of Poison Ivy having this almost unreasonable fear of, of ba oh, Batman, we're, we're the bad guys. He's the good guys. He's going to put us in jail. We know the relationship is much more complex than that, but I, I I'll give everybody a pass. The writers a pass in terms of, well, you got to remember that Th these are dreams. These are nightmares. And, you know, I've, I've certainly have dreams where I've acted out of, out of character or done things I never do in the waking world. Um, so you got to keep that in mind uh, as well, because that, that very well may be, you know, why they're acting out of character. Uh, so got to, got to bear that in mind as well. Uh, all right. Up next, we have night terrors, Batman. Um, this one, I find it interesting that this one's written by Joshua Williamson himself um, we know Williamson had that real short run on Batman uh, after Tynan left and before Chip Zdarsky came on. So uh, another chance for him to put his stamp on it. And this one more directly ties into the first blood, the, that first bookend. Uh, written by him. Art is by Guillaume March. Colors are by Tameo Moray. Letters by Troy Petrie. Um, this one. <laughs> so... You know, as expected, I suppose you'd say, Bruce, Bruce's nightmare, as we all know, hey, relive my parents' death and how I couldn't save them and blah, blah, blah. Um, so it's not treading anything new. My God, Bruce at one point almost gets – and he's back to being a little boy and, you know, helpless again, part of his nightmare. He almost gets crushed by giants. Think uh, the scene, speaking of Indiana Jones, think of that classic scene with the boulder – rolling after him in the, the first Indiana Jones, but this is pearls and there's more than one. Um, and then Bruce is taken to a graveyard, uh, transported from crime Valley to a graveyard. He actually sees insomnia. We don't see the true appearance of insomnia. He looks sort of like a punk Robin. He's got a purple Mohawk. He's got an eye for insomnia instead of an R um, heavily muscled, he has the domino mask on, but there's like these red lines radiating out of it. Um, and he's basically talking about wanting to team up with Batman, sort of, uh, again, giving us the impression that Batman is, you know, the keystone, the most powerful, the most important in the DCU, which I don't know, maybe it's my love of Superman that, that, that just bothers me. Um, but of course, Batman refuses. He starts fighting off insomnia. And then at one point, uh, after confronting him, he... And it's a horrific scene um, illustrated by Guillaume March. I'll talk about the art in a second. He vomits out this bat that, that has a giant gun for a head. And it's, I'm sorry, it just looks stupid. It like, I, I, I almost stopped reading the comic at that point. I was like, wait, what? 
does he he fears guns he hates guns he fears bats like what is going on here it just looked dumb um i i didn't really understand what williamson was trying to get at maybe you can explain it to me rocky because again this doesn't feel like we're treading any new ground yes batman's important yes batman will probably be the one to save the day uh it gets kind of old you know i just talked about hey if it's ravager that's an interesting choice we haven't done that before. We haven't seen that before. I would I would sort of welcome that. But this to me just I, I, I don't get it. And then when it comes to the Guillaume March art, like I don't know. Again, personal preference, he's probably choosing this style that he's working with because it is a horror comic. But man, when I think of Guillaume March, I always think to his art on uh, the Catwoman title when New 52 started and how clean it was and how beautiful Selena looked. And it was just, it was gorgeous art. I absolutely loved it. And his art, like even when we had him on the Joker series, that was really a Jim Gordon series from Jane Steinen recently, his art is almost unrecognizable to me at this point. It just looks so different from from what it's looked like in the past. And I just, I just don't really care for it. So again, this was just another underwhelming issue. Um, maybe, as I said, not surprising that it ties so closely in to the main story because Williamson is writing the main story and he did write this uh, issue. So that might have something to do with why it's so, uh, so important to, to what we have to, you know, yeah. to, to advancing the main story. So what were your thoughts on it? Well, what I found interesting here was Joshua Williamson did, did actually create a hell of a obstacle for Batman to overcome here. But unfortunately, it's it sets the bar pretty high because what what insomnia essentially insomnia tells Batman is that you know he says Batman you you misunderstand you know I'm I'm paraphrasing by the way insomnia basically tells Batman look I'm not the one creating your nightmare you are so just think about this for a second remember that Batman created failsafe right Batman created failsafe that was capable of defeating him. Because only something that Batman could create could defeat Batman. Well, think of it this way. Jo- we know that Batman can overcome fears created from Scarecrow. But what if Bat- What if the f- fear created is from Batman himself? Surely Batman himself knows what he fears the most, more than any of his enemies. And that's what I find interesting about this is Insomnia basically saying, look, I'm actually not doing nothing. My power lies in what I can make you do. You create your own nightmare. So I'm not doing anything. And now, now maybe Insomnia is lying. Maybe Insomnia actually is creating it. But I find that interesting. And when I when I I read this twice, and I was trying to figure out what well, what are the hints of Batman's true nightmare here, I, I picked up themes. At one point, it says, "Well, Batman fears being happy," <laughs> which I think because that was even teased, uh, and I, I don't actually think that's the case. Uh, but Batman does fear loss of family. I think that's clear. He doesn't. He would Batman being alone. I think that there's some truth to that, that he fears literally losing and failing everyone around him. And I think that's very true. And then at the end, it's rather curious that you, you mentioned when he puked up the bat with the gun. There, you know, that the idea of the, the creature of the night, the bat, Batman fears guns. He fears 
he, he fears failing. There was a, a scene at the beginning of the comic where a, a young Bruce Wayne was sort of, he had these giant pearls, you know, there's, his mother was killed. Of course, the pearl scene, the pearls were ripped off his mother as she, after she was shot by Joe Chill and she dies. And, and he's had these images of these pearls. So these giant pearls, he's got those images interspersed with this, this idea of the big bat and, and this gun shooting at him. And, and then Batman becomes Joe Chill at the end here. And I'm wondering, does does Batman harbor some deeply laden guilt about feeling guilty for his parents' death in some way? That that maybe if maybe if he didn't want to go to the movie Zorro, his parents wouldn't have taken him to the movie Zorro. I'm just guessing here. I'm spitballing. So <laughs> I'm just, but I'm curious that you know, in his own nightmare, he becomes Joe Chill, and maybe it's it's you know, building on that idea that when you when you become the hero, you eventually become the very eventually Batman, his fear is becoming, one day becoming the very thing he fights. He fights the superstitious and cowardly lot. Does Batman fear that one day he will fail and become that superstitious and cowardly lot himself? I don't know. Uh, but it's interesting uh, that, um, you know, I'm, I, you know, like I said, I... I'm I'm a sucker for a good metaphor. I like reading more into these comics. Admittedly, some people might shake their heads at me and say, uh, "You know, you're you're reading too much into his writing." But I like to do that, and I like to give him the benefit of the doubt that this is going somewhere. And that's why I said that overall, other than the Black Adam comic, I actually was I'm actually kind of impressed here. But this is why I said I think Williamson sets the bar pretty high because if Batman himself is setting forth what his nightmare is. Well, ultimately, it's Joshua Williamson that has to decide what Batman decides because he's the writer. And I'm not really sure what, my God, what does Batman think his greatest fear is? That's that's now, okay, you've, you've teased us with that now, Joshua Williamson. Now you got to tell us what it is. So... So I don't know. It's uh, got mixed feelings about it. But overall, I, I think I'm curious as to where this is going. Yeah. Again, MacGuffin hunts can be fun. This excuse me, this could be a fun event, but I don't know. It, it feels so disconnected. And again, just the, the, the art just, uh, just disappointed me time and time again. Um, yeah. All right. Well, next. We, we got to back. Don't forget the backup with Damian Wayne. Oh yeah. Go ahead and talk about the backup. Uh, the only thing I had to say about yeah. the backup, it does um, come directly out of the new comic book day. And I thought the David LaFuente art again, now we have clean lines. Now we have traditional superhero art. Yeah. I feel I'm so such a hypocrite, right? Um, because this doesn't. This is good art, but it's such a cartoon style and so animated, it doesn't fit the tone. So yeah, yeah I, I guess I'm I'm giving DC an impossible task here. At the end of the day, I just don't want this event. I don't want a DC to be a horror universe for two months. I guess so. Anyway, uh, what are your thoughts on the backup? Well, the backup uh, does build on the new, uh, the free comic book day issue where, where Damien has a dream while in the midst of an adventure with Batman, he ends up having a dream that he realizes is more than just a dream because, because Damien is, of course, he's Damien and he was trained by the League of Assassins. And Damien, even though he's only whatever, 14, 15 years old, he's got a very highly trained mind and he knew that something was off with his dreams. And Damien, his, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think Joshua Williamson is giving even Damien far too much credit here. Somehow Damien suspects that something is up in the dream world. And so Damien goes to the master of sleeps and dreams. Uh, you know, this, this master who's in this high, you know, somewhere in the desert. He, 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 
I don't know where he finds time to do this. Damien just decided to go and fly off and go to the obs- this obscure desert and find the master of sleeps and dreams. And the only and he wants to read about dreams. He wants to get Damien uh, seeks to understand his dreams and to unlock them. And it's something that even his father, Raza Gall, failed to do. This master of sleeps and dreams tells him, even your father failed to unlock his dreams and to learn and, and to learn to, to master the dreams and understand put understand the power of the dream world. And uh, Damien, uh, while he's in this sort of temple, this this he comes across he comes across this scroll, and he uh, he comes across on this scroll is the recording of a dream showing Raza Gall killing Sandman uh, under an hourglass, and on each side of the hourglass are bats on one side and doves on the other. So, what does this picture on this scroll mean? And how could it? How could this be a picture that, uh, of something? This scroll is potentially thousands of years old. How could it somehow somebody in the past prophesized what might be happening now? Is Ra- Razo Gull strangling dead man? Well, Razo Gull we know is dead, but we know he kind of returned uh, in <laughs> long story. But uh, so what's going on here? What's the symbol of the hourglass? Why the bats and doves? We know what the bats symbolize. What do the doves symbolize? What is the hourglass? There's also a skull. And so what's going on here now? Damien wants to be able to master his his dreams, but just before he can uh, just before he can do that, that's when insomnia attacks the world and all the world is falling asleep. And the master of sleeps and dreams is kind of cocky about it. And as the purple mist of the insomnia uh, and the sleepless nights, as it enters the the temple, the master of sleeps and dreams says, "Don't worry, we've been training for decades on how to combat this, but." Unfortunately, he does fall asleep. But Damien right away knows, saying, no, you fool, your teachings were, I think he's going to say your teachings were wrong. So somehow, for decades, somebody has been manipulating and making sure that the master of sleeps and dreams himself has been uh, training wrongly for, for decades because even he is defenseless against uh, against the forces of insomnia. So he's going to fall asleep as well. And Damien falls asleep and Damien wakes up, of course, and, and doesn't realize that, I, I don't think Damien realizes when he wakes up that he's actually in a dream. Uh, we'll have to wait next issue to see how that transpires. But it's very interesting. So it hints at uh, Rosal maybe still playing a role in this, that Dead Man plays a role in this as well because we know that Dead Man is going to be a hero that is going to have to step up to the plate to win the day. And so this scroll, this picture on the scroll of, of Razo Gall sort of having his grip around Dead Man and that hourglass of bats and doves, I think that's interesting and a potential clue that we should be mindful of as we read this uh, uh, these stories going forward. Yeah, continue, that story continued in Night Terrors 3, apparently, so... Uh, all right. Up next, we have Night Terrors, the Joker, number one, from apparently new Joker writer Matthew Rosenberg. Been writing a lot of <laughs> Stefano Raphael as the artist from Milo Fajardo Jr. on colors, Tom Napolitano on colors. Uh, this one's kind of funny. Uh, I'm going to let you kick it off, Rocky, because uh, you can give a recap of <laughs> what happens on the <laughs> basically um, the first page uh, of the second page of the story, I guess, uh, and it leads into everything that comes after. Yeah, you know, this, damn if I didn't find this funny. Uh, I didn't, you know, on the one hand, I could say that I found this kind of predictable, but honestly, I don't think, I don't think anyone could have written it quite as entertaining as this. I thought this was, was very, very entertaining. 
I I I love the way that uh, Rosenberg here. I mean, is it is it really any any surprise that the Joker's nightmare is is Batman dying? <laughs> I mean, a world without a Batman, you know, that's the Joker's nightmare. And I don't know. I thought it was hilarious. This starts off of the Joker on on a rooftop and, uh, you know, Batman confronting him and Batman walks toward him and Batman literally slips. He, He slips himself. The Joker doesn't trip him. I thought the Joker tripped him at first, but it's Batman. He's on a rooftop. It's raining. Batman slips on the rain and hits his head cracks his head and then slides off the roof and then is and then dies. <laughs> I mean, it's the most mundane, pointless death you could imagine. And it's the worst nightmare for Joker as that he could possibly have because number one, Batman dies in front of him and number two, he doesn't die from his hand. He, he literally died a ridiculously pointless death, literally tripping and falling off a roof. It is so funny, and the Joker is so pissed off. And I got to give credit to the uh, I got to give credit to the writer uh, Stefano Raphael on the art, Romeo Fujita on the colors. Uh, the Joker is so pissed off. The Joker is miserable throughout this entire comic. He's his life is miserable. He just he wants Batman. He's so upset with Batman being dead that he he. He, he basically ends up, he gives up being the Joker and he, he starts working for a corporate office. He becomes a manager of this corporate office and he, and he stuffs Batman's corpse in his closet at home. He's, you know, he just, he can't just, he can't accept the fact that Batman's dead. <laughs> and, and as the story progresses, you know, he, he's sort of staying in touch with his, with his, with his fellow rogues or his, he's with his, uh, with his gang. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not sure what to do. Well, should we kill Superman next? Or maybe we should kill Green Arrow and, <laughs> you know, how, how are we supposed to kill Superman? I don't know. We killed Batman, did we? And then even Joker says, did we? Or did he just fall off a roof and die like a freaking moron? <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I, you know, Matthew Rosenberg, I've, I've listened to other, uh, People give their reviews, and not not everyone finds his sense of humor funny. I think it was funny this. Time. I I laughed out loud in more than one page in this comic. I had a blast. I had a lot of fun, and and it's. I think there's something strangely appropriate about knowing that this is the Joker's worst nightmare, and I'm and for once we the readers are laughing. As opposed to reading a horror, as opposed to reading the Joker doing something horrific and the Joker's laughing. Now, finally, something funny is happening to him and he's not laughing. It's horrific to him, but it's hilarious to the reader. That's what I love about this. It flips the script and it's almost kind of meta how it does it. And so I quite enjoyed it. And uh yeah, and and getting into the office shenanigans and 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 what the Joker ends up actually meeting with Insomnia himself, who in this particular case ends up playing the role of uh, John D himself, who is sort of like the this corporate guru, uh, and he works for this uh, corporate head office, and and the Joker the Joker is more than prepared to be destructive, but he ends up getting promoted. And the bottom line here, I think it's quite clear that Insomnia is going to try to manipulate the Joker, undoubtedly to try to get the Joker to help him find the Nightmare Stone. And But, but getting there seems to be absolutely crazy. And the Joker himself doesn't, I think the Joker himself senses that something is wrong, knows that something's off in this world. And because at the end, 
it's revealed that Batman is still alive or somebody pretending to be Batman is still alive and that sort of perks the Joker up again. How can the Batman be alive? I'm pretty sure he died in front of me. And he, you know, and it ends with him ominously sitting watching TV with the corpse of Batman behind him in the couch. And I thought this was, frankly, this is probably the best Matthew Rosenberg story uh, that I've read in, in, in quite a while. And, and, Despite it being the Joker, I quite I quite enjoyed it. I, I'm actually really looking forward to seeing seeing how this ends. So, what what do you think of it? Yeah, I just thought it, it was a lot of fun, right? It's meta, like you said. You get into the whole office environment and you know what that entails. It's it's pretty entertaining. It's pretty funny. Um, again, it's not you know necessarily treading any new ground when it comes to what the Joker's you know, nightmare might be, well, yeah, he, he, he doesn't have a purpose without Batman. So you, you, you know, you kind of understand that, that that sort of works. Um, it's not anything surprising or unexpected, but it's done well. And yeah, I, I mean, the idea of, like you said, Batman slipping in the rain and, you know, s- collapsing onto the roof. And, and, you know, that's funny enough as it is, but then the fact that he, because it's raining, he gradually slides off toward the end of the roof, and they're all just kind of watching. Like, he's not really gonna, like he's, it's Batman, right? Like the the idea of that actually happening is so ludicrous <laughs> that would never actually happen to Batman. Um, it's just funny. It's just it's yeah. just funny. So yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it as well. Yeah, that was good. All right. Uh, so that's Night Terrors. Let's move on to there are a couple of other books. Superman family books, actually, that are coming out this week. We have Adventures of Superman, John Kent, <laughs> issue number five, Countdown to Injustice, chapter five, Takedown, written by Tom Taylor, Clayton Henry's the artist, and all cards are on the table, right? Like, this is the Injustice Superman that we've all come to know and hate, I guess we'll say, um, because he is just such a scumbag, for lack of a better term. Um, and we know that, uh, in the last issue, John, the, a tracker was placed on John. Um, and so when he goes to meet with Batman and, and Batman's insurgency, Damien knows about it. He tells Superman, but it's interesting. Superman, he, he seems to have somewhat of a blind spot to John Kent. You know, the whole reason that he, he turned evil, if you will, or maybe, maybe fascist is a better way to put it is because he killed his unborn son. He killed his beloved Lois. And so he has a blind spot. And Damien says that, you know, he's like, he's out there helping my father. He's someone you've known for days. I've stood by you from the beginning. And again, from what we know of Damien, that that makes sense. But this is not a world, this is not a happy world. You know, we saw that a couple issues ago when John talked about how quiet and peaceful it is, but it's not not peaceful because people are, harmonious it's peaceful because people are scared so everything that tom taylor has done it's all setting up now i know there's criticism i know there's people and i'm among them who wanted an ultraman story but i'm again i'm not going to critique this from what it isn't and what i want it to be i'm just critiquing it for what it is and what it is is a really interesting story of injustice superman and in a way you can sort of take injustice superman and look at him as an analog of Ultraman in a lot of ways, but he's even sort of closer to being a distorted mirror image of what Superman really is, right? Because when you talk about Ultraman and being from Earth-3, he was evil from the beginning, right? It's, it's that backwards Earth where morality is different. 
the heroes are villains and the villains are heroes. This is a Superman that, you know, in the Injustice universe was good, was a force for good, was very similar to to our Superman or the Superman of, you know, Earth Zero or, or Multiverse Zero, however you want to categorize it. Uh, but then just had that break from the fact that, you know, the Joker gas, you know, um, sort of mixed with kryptonite made him see his unborn son and his wife as doomsday. And he took her up to space and like he killed her. He's the one that is responsible for the death of his unborn son and the death of the, the person he cared about the most on the planet. And so that that broke him. That broke him. Um, but that, in a way, makes him a mirror image that's more closely um, associated with the, the main universe Superman, more closely linked to John's actual father. Uh, so th- there's an interesting dynamic there that wouldn't exist with John going up against Ultraman. Now, the other part of it, in terms of you know dr- drama and having story re- resolution or whatever – John's got history with Ultraman, right? Being trapped in that volcano. And that's what I wanted to see explored. And that's why if there's disappointment, that's where it comes from. And I completely understand it because I, I share that. I was looking forward to what that was going to be. And I hope we still get that story someday because I think we need that resolution. We need John to confront Ultraman because that felt unresolved when we got that in the first issue. But again, that is what might have been. This is what is. And I, it fits in very well with the Superman of Injustice. I mean, Tom Taylor wrote that Superman, so he's you know familiar with how he would act. Um, so, yeah, this is working for me. I like the characterization of this Superman. I like the characterization of this Damien. I like the characterization of, of John in this world for the most part because there is a moment. There is a moment when John is speaking to uh, Harley Quinn. Now, Harley Quinn, in this reality, never broke free of the Joker. Um, she was by the Joker's side when he, he exposed Superman to that kryptonized Joker gas and caused Superman to kill Lois. Superman, this injustice Superman, blames Harley as much as he blames Joker for what he did. And, you know, Harley, at that moment, saw... She even says in this issue, she's like, it was all fun and games. I never really thought, you know, I, I was with the Joker and went along with his plans because I thought it was all fun and games. I never really thought anybody would really, truly get hurt, which is interesting because she talks about the other people that she's murdered. <laughs> so I guess she means the superheroes it wouldn't really get hurt. Like status quo wouldn't really change. In a way, she's right. You know, if you want to get meta, you can't ever really change the status quo of these heroes. It always has to come back because DC's got to sell comics and the heroes have to be recognizable very rare that something actually changes but setting that aside you know she says she's on she's with the the resistance that realization that hey they really were playing for stakes people really could die seeing the joker the cause of superman murdering his own wife and unborn son that that caused her to go over to the other side but she so she's there and wants to overthrow this superman who's ruling the planet uh and so she's there when john comes to visit and he's convinced that you know, they need to take Superman out. But when she says how sorry she is, she's like, I've never been, I never had the chance to apologize to anybody I murdered before. And she really does seem to have had a change of heart based on, uh, you know, what she did and what she was a part of. 
it, maybe it's a little out of character. I'm not sure how I feel about it yet. I, I think I need to think on it more. John doesn't, he's like, what are you looking for? Are you looking for forgiveness? That's not going to happen. That's so interesting because he's so merciful in so many other ways. But when Harley says, yeah, I, and, and she doesn't even say that I want to be forgiven. You know, she doesn't come right out and say that she's apologizing. Um, and he, he says, you know, are you after forgiveness? That's not going to happen. You helped a monster. You have to live with that. But as long as you're alive, do better, be better, make a difference. That's the only chance you have to make this right. It's so interesting because he kind of bites her head off. And I, I don't blame John. I'd probably do the same thing had somebody murdered me in a different reality. I wouldn't want to forgive that person either. But it's so interesting because it's juxtaposed against what John is talking about just a little while earlier when he says that he wants to turn Superman from this injustice Superman from the path he's on. He's not willing to kill, right? But yet he won't forgive Harley for killing. There's an interesting dichotomy there. So, uh, and then at the end, kind of, you know, just talking about distorted mirror images, John being the best of Lois and the best of Clark or Kal-El or Superman of our world, you know, and then when this injustice Superman, because of the tracker Damien put on John Kent is able to go and capture the resistance. He's able to capture Bruce Wayne. Um, and he's Bruce is to be executed. Harley Quinn is to be executed. Harley says something to Superman. He's like, you don't even open your mouth to me. You don't even talk. He's ready to fry her right there with his heat vision. Again, very much the sort of opposite side of the coin of what, John Kent is. So really interesting. Uh, the other one other aspect of the story that I will point out, we were just talking about in terms of this night terror story about how it seems like Batman's going to be the key and he's all powerful and prepared for everything. Boy, he gets defeated pretty easily here. When the time comes to take on Superman, everybody in the resistance is supposed to take what they call a super pill to give them super strength and invulnerability and super reflexes and all that. And they're planning on attacking the next day, but Superman and the justice league that are uh, alongside him working alongside him, they wait for John to leave and then they go and attack and Superman or uh, Batman's like, quick, everybody take your super pills. And he like tosses them toward people. Like what's Superman going to do? Of course he blasts it with a seat. As long as he can see it, if he can see this little bottle of pills being thrown, as long as he can see it, he's going to fry it with, with heat vision and then, you know, Selena's backhanded, Superman's or Batman's defeated very easily. Um, yeah, so we went from Night Terrors, hey, Batman's the best, he's the key, whatever. In this issue, he's nothing. He's less than nothing. Superman defeats him so easily, which is probably more realistic in what would actually happen if Batman took on Superman. But it goes to show that it's all in service to the story, right? If the writer want, if the writer, because of the needs of the story, needs Batman to defeat Superman, he will. Uh, if not, then he won't. So uh, I, I could have sworn, though, that I remember when reading Injustice that Batman always had kryptonite in his belt. Didn't even, like, maybe before you throw the super pills, get the kryptonite out. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. His belt his, his belt's taken away right, right from the start by Flash. But, uh, you know, they get at least a couple seconds warning from Barbara Gordon from Oracle. She says, hey, we're, we're under attack. I don't know. They've been planning for a long time. Some sort of kryptonite force field? Eh, I don't know. It, it just, again, I know it's in service to the story, but Batman was defeated so easily. So easily. Again, I don't necessarily mind that, but it's super inconsistent with, uh, with what we see of Batman. But this isn't the Batman that we're used to. This isn't the Batman that jumped from the moon. That, that is a Batman from a different part of the multi. 
So uh, other than that, the Clayton Henry art, I thought it's absolutely fantastic. He's a great choice for this. He's got a good mix of emotion and action and his line work. Uh, the colors are great as well. So uh, yeah, this was nice. It was, I was glad we had this uh, and also still works. We're going to talk about in a second and peacemaker for that matter to sort of cleanse the palate from all the night terror stuff. So anyway, what'd you think of this rock? Well, like you, I got to uh, I got to review the comic and the story we're given, not the one that I wish was not the story that I wish was told. Uh, now, having said that, I uh, I I see some inconsistencies between this and how I remember Injustice, and and I could actually I was actually critical of of Batman being so easily defeated because even Injustice Batman I think was even more of a uh, was more about preparation than even mainstream Batman is, quite frankly. But um, here I am criticizing Tom Taylor. He's the master of the Injustice universe. But I will say this. A couple of things that I thought uh, sort of stood out to me is, you know, uh, which was was very forced from the beginning. Like Lois, instead of just – Lois Lane gives her son, John Kent, uh, uh, basically a, a crystal to – a message that he's not supposed to read until – until he gets to where he's going, and so he's he he looks at the message here, uh, which doesn't make any sense. She tells him what he already knows and what we readers already know, and she just doubles down and she tells John exactly why us readers are so disappointed, or some of us are so disappointed, and that is that I couldn't believe John that you came back and that you weren't screwed up when you were tortured in that volcano and you still came back and you had empathy and and uh, I don't know I, I couldn't believe uh, you you. You, I'm sorry for what you have to go through, for the trauma you have to face head on. I wish I could be there to look after you, but I know you have to. You, you have to do this alone. Um, well, first of all, he doesn't have to do it alone, and he was he didn't leave, and he wasn't by himself, so that doesn't make any sense. Uh, he doesn't have to be it alone. That was sort of like the whole point. He he, if he was gonna, you know, but it is true that he's he's perfect. He's uh, if it wasn't for him f showing no forgiveness to Harley Quinn. I would call him a Gary Sue, a Gary Sue. I mean, straight up Gary Sue. He's perfect. No trauma. You can torture me and do whatever you want. I'm still going to, I'm still going to, I'm still going to, I'm still going to be like this perfect guy. I'm still going to do everything right. It's all good. So at least he got pissed off at Harley Quinn. I really, I thought that was finally something I can put my hang my hat on so that John Kent isn't a com completely wussified where he's, I mean, to me, show me some flaws. So I was like, I, I like to see that. And What's now? What? What? So I'm glad that happened. I'm glad he didn't forgive Harley Quinn. I'm and Lois showing up and telling him, "I'm proud of your son. Do whatever." To me, one of the most poignant moments are, are when Jonathan and Martha Kent show up, and Jonathan and Martha Kent are are basically prisoners at the Fortress of Solitude because Injustice Superman leaves his parents there because he wants to protect them, but he really wants to control them. He wants to protect them, and he's hiding them away. And it's impossible not to see the comparisons between what Ultraman did to John Kent by controlling him, imprisoning him in the volcano, controlling him, wanting, wanting to almost, you know, what was Ultraman's obsession with John Kent? Well, John Kent was kind of like his own de facto son, but from another universe. Just like Ultraman was trying to control John Kent by imprisoning him in that volcano and visiting him every day, talking to him. It was kind of a twisted, sick relationship. But here we are, John and Martha Kent, Jonathan and Martha Kent, you know, clearly, just like John Kent says, he's sensing a theme here. This idea of, you know, keeping your, you know, uh, 
you know, uh, locked you in a fortress for your own protection, did he? I'm sensing a theme here. And that's what Injustice Superman is doing. And so you can, there are similarities between the mindset of Injustice Superman and, dare I say it, Ultraman. Now, I still say I wish this was Ultraman and not Injustice Superman, quite frankly. I don't know why you'd want to bring this Injustice universe into this storyline because it, it doesn't it won't it doesn't feel as personal. This this feels like John Kent is I still feel like he's not coming to terms with Ultraman uh in an Injustice universe. But maybe Ultraman's gonna return. We're gonna have to wait and see. But at least I you know I what I find so odd is Tom Taylor is Instead of using Ultraman, he's using these other symbolic representations of, of Ultraman, Injustice Superman, when he could just be using Ultraman. It's a decent enough story. Um, and if you're an Injustice fan, which I am, maybe this, is, uh, this, this can resonate. It doesn't resonate with me. I think it taints Injustice. I don't like seeing it. To be, and it's, it's, it's the last thing that Injustice needs. It's a good story. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. This doesn't do anything for it. Uh, the last thing, can you imagine how horrible it would be if John Kent actually has an impact on Injustice Superman? That would be horrible. The whole attraction of Injustice Superman is that he's, he's kind of an evil bastard. Leave him alone. Don't, don't redeem him. Please don't redeem him. But in any event, uh, DC might be, on that, might be on that redemption kick. They were stupid enough to, to, to redeem Superboy Prime. Which, uh, which I thought was a huge mistake. But that's another story. But all in all, I got mixed feelings about this. Is it a good story? Yes. Is it the story I want? No. Uh, I think if they do redeem Injustice Superman, so first of all, I think it would be a mistake in a lot of ways. But at the same time, I, I think if they did, it would be sort of a deathbed redemption, right? Like he would sacrifice himself to, you know, to save... so it would sort of be ambiguous, right? Like if Superman's world, if this earth were endangered, this version of Superman, I think would still sacrifice himself to save the world. Now you could interpret that as him being redeemed because he's putting the needs of the world above his own personal needs, or you could still look at it selfishly and say, well, he didn't want to look bad. You know what I'm saying? Like he, yeah. he, this earth is under his protection. He's got a sense of ownership, right? That our, that, that the regular Superman doesn't. So yeah. Interesting. If they do decide to, to redeem him, which again, I could, I could see them doing, but I could also see them not doing so. Uh, anyways, up next we have Steelworks. Uh, as we mentioned previously, this is written by Michael Dorn. If that name sounds familiar. That's Michael Dorn from Star Trek, the next generation. Uh, the art, let me get to the credits page, uh, is by uh, Sammy Basri. Um, he does have some assists by Vicente Sifuentes and Max Rayner. Andrew Dollhouse and Matt Herms handle the colors, and Rob Lee does the letters. So uh, what do you think of this second issue here? It's not bad. Not bad. We're introduced to a new villain here, the Silver Mist, uh, with, uh, because we know that uh, the... There is a Steelworks is uh, the Steelworks Tower is this new high rise in Metropolis. It's owned by, of course, uh, John Henry Irons and his his, his niece, uh, Natasha Irons. And their goal is to harbor in a new era for uh, a new era of, I guess, <laughs> n n 
a new a new era for society to make to make humanity capable of protecting itself and to lessen humanity's reliance on superheroes and particularly on the superman family and that's really what what is happening here meanwhile you got a bad guy sort of his lex luthor arch nemesis is this um uh this mr walker who is this uh, sort of uh this flamboyant this sort of uh this flamboyant villain who wears, uh, you know, he's decked out in red. He's got these uh, small little spectacle glasses, and he's Mr. Walker is is uh, he's experimented on this sort of this disgruntled former employee of Steelworks called Sean Carey. Sean Carey is experimented upon, and he becomes the Silver Mist. And the Silver Mist is capable of walking through walls, of being transparent, and walking through anything, but. The, the one significant uh, weakness he has is that if he walks, if this silver mist walks through anything or phases through anything and he stops, uh, then he'll, he'll get stuck. So if he phases through a wall, but he doesn't completely go through the wall, he'll, and he unfazes, he'll be killed. And so he's got to be careful with it. And this, this issue, not a, not a heck of a lot happened this issue, but there was, this was still, I think, set up. I, I like there was a really good scene with the super with the Superman family showing up uh, and uh, talking with a talking with uh, John or pardon me talking with uh, John Henry Irons and Natasha where where they sort of debate and they talk about you know what what the goals of Steelworks are and you know the, the Superman family you know Supergirl Kara Connor Kent they're they're kind of concerned. What do you mean you want to? Yeah, the world will always need us. They'll always need our protection. We're superheroes. There are some threats that only we can help them with. But, you know, John is saying, well, at some point, they got to learn to do this by themselves. And this point about humanity being, we have to empower humanity and move away from their reliance on superheroes, it's reinforced by the fact that at the end of the issue, just like at the end of the first issue, we get these other, we get these, uh, we get these, this, this database of information of other tragic events or that are events that have happened in the life and in the, in the continuity of, of John Henry Irons. Uh, in particular, there was a spiral incident uh, dealing with the death of uh, death of this character named Spiral, even the death of the original Supergirl, uh, Superwoman who was the lowest lane from the new 52 and that she, uh, she was the original Superwoman and she was ultimately replaced by Lana Lang. And then there was the uh, Tracy Corbin, which we saw playing out in the event, in the pages of Action Comics, where Tracy Corbin was experimented upon by the cyborg Superman. And these are all events that Steelworks is keeping an eye on and are keeping a database of information on these individuals. And all with the goal here of ultimately moving to protect humanity. And they got this new energy source, this new energy core that they're working on, which uh, ultimately this the, this net the the antagonist in this issue, Mr. Walker, wants to wants to destroy this central energy core within Steelworks Tower, and all with this uh, all with this uh, team up with Silver Mist who uh, at the end of this issue manages to break into steelworks and incapacitate Natasha Irons. So I'm I'm curious to see where this is going. I don't know. I'm I'm interested with in the idea of this over of trying to move away from over reliance on superheroes. I'm you know because he's doing something that you know it's interesting when I think of the what steelworks is trying to do, I would think that Lex Luthor would want to team up with John Henry Irons 
because Lex Luthor hates superheroes too. He hates Superman. He hates the, the over-reliance on superheroes. Lex Luthor, I would have thought that if you'd have told me that Lex Luthor had this plan that Natasha Iron had, <laughs> Natasha, or that, that John Henry Irons has, I would say, this is a Lex Luthor plot. And, and yet it's it's John Henry Irons, it still works. So, you know, it's interesting. We got Supercore controlled by Superman now because Lex Luthor gave Superman Supercore and you got Steelworks. Well, between Supercore and Steelworks and and even this and even the traditional viewpoint of Lex Luthor being against metahumans and moving away from reliance on them, I would think that this plan that John Henry Irons has would be completely embraced and quite easy to implement in Metropolis. So I find that interesting and what I what I kind of find disappointing here is I think instead of having this Mr. Walker, it should be Lex Luthor should be expressing an interest in what John Henry Irons is doing. That, I think, would be very, very interesting. I mean, imagine the genius of Lex Luthor and John Henry Irons working together to, toward that goal. That would be very interesting. And it's, I'm, I, I'm curious where, what, if Michael Dorn has any, writer Michael Dorn has any plans to bring Lex Luthor into this story. Because frankly, I think that would, that would really spice this up. Yeah, I kind of don't see it the same. Um, first of all, you know, when Philip Kennedy Johnson was on the last time and he was talking about his action comics run, he, he basically said uh, Joshua Williamson has basically dibs on Luther right now in his Superman title. So as you know, as much nerd cred as Michael Dorn has, he hasn't written a lot of comics um, and he's doing a fantastic job. Um, so he probably, you know, he may have wanted to use Lex Luthor instead He's creating this new character, which actually I think works better because this guy's got a grudge against John Henry Irons. He's got, uh, you know, the, the patsy he's using, this Mr. Carey guy, the gray mist who's gained these powers, really interesting character. Uh, again, not uh, super original when it comes to how his powers work or um, how they don't work, if you know what I mean. Um, but but interesting, right? Sci he's Michael Dorn, Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, one of my favorite shows of all time, Stargate SG-1. All three of my dogs are named after SG-1 characters. Um, there, <laughs> really? were, there were uh, the uh, the Gould, the Gould, uh, who had these force fields, and fast-moving objects would be deflected, but slower-moving objects wouldn't. Kind of similar, right? Uh, when Carrie swings, if his you know whatever part of his body is moving fast, it will phase. If he stops, you know, again, that's a, a thing. Um, people being teleported what have you nightcrawler you think about him he can't teleport into somewhere he can't see because he might materialize in something he'd die so all that you know very similar concepts concepts familiar to us that we're that we're used to so i think it works on that level really interesting uh i love that he didn't go all in cliche of this guy carrie being oh yeah i want to get back at john henry Irons, whatever like his life is ruined right like he lost his job he lost his family <laughs> so if, if, if you didn't read the first issue or you didn't listen to our review basically the even though this guy lost his job because uh, um, of this corporation um, that went out of business because John Henry Irons exposed what they were doing, uh, you know, what they were illegally doing. So this guy lost his job. He lost his health insurance. His wife wasn't able to get the medical care that she needed for, you know, the disease that she had. And she likely would have died anyway. Um but you know he blames that he blames John Henry Irons. But what's interesting is when Charles Walker the Third, you know, goes to him and says, "Hey, I give you a chance to get revenge." He's like, "What good will that do? It won't bring my wife back." You know, so I, I like that he didn't, you know, make 
carry this guy. Oh yeah, I want revenge. I'm so mad. Whatever. Like, he's 100 percent right. What's the point? Like it doesn't matter. It's not going to bring my wife back. Yes, I blame John Henry Irons for what he did, but he just as easily could blame Charles Walker for allowing the you know illegal acts to to go wrong that John Henry had to report them in the first place. So I like that. I like the idea of the gray mist. The other thing about it, um, why I don't think Lex Luthor would have been the best choice is that, you know, Henry, John Henry Irons is saying, yes, we can use the new technology that Superman brought back from War World. We can create this wall or this energy field, this force field around Metropolis to help prevent the what he calls brush fires, right? The minor things where he wants people to be more independent, more self-reliant and not be expecting a superhero to come and help them out when a cat is stuck in a tree. And the reason he wants them to not have to focus on the smaller threats is so they can focus on the larger threats, wide threats. And he, and he, and whether it's coming from an alien dimension or, you know, something else, some, uh, you know, aliens from a different galaxy or whatever it might be, you know, whatever world ending event, that's where the heroes can focus. He even references when John basically took the place of his father when Superman was off during the War World saga. And he said, and he says, John, yeah, this is what you were doing, right? You were taking a more proactive role. And if we're not needed to, you know, stop the day-to-day bank robbery or out of control trolley car or, or subway train or whatever, we can focus more on that. We can be more proactive worldwide. Luther, as you know, opposed to that, just doesn't want to interfering at all. So it's not really – I don't think John Henry Irons and Luther would, would see eye to eye on it. Luther wants heroes gone completely. Uh, John Henry just wants them to be free to, to focus on larger threats. Um, at least that's the way that I interpret it. So really interesting what Dorn is doing here. Um, again, not completely new ground. Uh, and one little nitpick I have is uh, – so I do like the fact Steel, and he's had this helmet from the beginning, right? Like it looks just like his head just a steel version of it, right? The mouth doesn't move, the eyes don't blink, whatever. Um, Natasha has a similar set of armor, but her hers does move, and uh, you can see her teeth, you can see her tongue. How does that, how does that work? And, and I'm not picking on Dorn, I'm not picking on the artists that do this here, because we've seen it, you know, in plenty of other comics, and I always find that to be strange, right? Like, if you have a full face mask, and it's going to be like a Deadpool or a Spider-Man where, you know, you talk through – there's no mouth. You just talk through it. People can hear you. You may be a little muffled. Uh, but when they have this f- kind of full helmet, how is it that their lips move? And you can see their tongue. And you can see their teeth and what have you. Like, that's really strange to me. Um, but anyway, it's just something I noticed uh, in, in the artwork. Again, it's not – yeah, you actually just had that cover up um, if you're watching us on YouTube. I was just talking about how – Steel's not supposed to be able to open his mouth, but on that cover, yeah, he's got his mouth open. You can see his teeth and tongue. That's not how the helmet works, man. It's a full mask. Like it'd be like seeing Tony Stark, you know, being able to see inside his mouth. So yes, I'm thinking I know, uh, but yeah, yeah I'm really right. super. I'm super impressed with what Michael Dorn is doing. I would, I'd love to chat with him about this, um, and I hope he writes more comics. Is <laughs> he? Like I didn't even know he was a big comic fan. I mean, I know he's a voracious reader and. He's somewhat of a renaissance man. Uh, he's got so many varied interests. Um, and, and I knew he was a writer, but I, just, I don't think he's written comics before. But kudos to him for coming in and writing a uh, Steel title, right? I mean, if, you, if somebody told you, yeah, Worf from Star Trek is going to write a comic, what would you expect that comic to be? 
no, I, yeah, of course, Star Trek. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't dream it was, uh, you know, yeah. steel, but or steelworks, but huh. yeah. But he's doing a fantastic job. I'm really impressed. Yeah, he is. So. Uh, anyway, on to the last book we're going to talk about. Uh, it's a, it's a title that Rocky and I have both really been enjoying. Uh, Black Label book. Peacemaker try, tries hard. Book three, written by Kyle Starks, art by Steve Pugh, colors by Jordan Belair, letters by Becca Carey. There is a uh, movie pa- movie poster variant, which I have mixed feelings about because it, it has the same image as the regular uh, cover and the, and the virgin version of that. I wish it was a different image, just just to give some variety. But I love I love it, right? Because it has the the lines like you know when a movie poster would come and it would be folded a bunch of times and you'd get those little white specks on the creases. Uh, it says all pain, no gain. And then Peacemaker <laughs> tries number three. Uh, and then the subtitle, the, tr- the trying increases. It's so, yeah, uh, right. so I just, I loved that cover. So yeah. uh, anyway, give us your thoughts on this issue, Rocky. Uh, this one had plenty of laugh out loud moments as the series has had throughout. Well, you know, last issue ended with the brain and Mala completely betraying Peacemaker and basically shooting him and you think shooting him and you think peacemaker is dead but no peacemaker wanders in wanders into a bar and um uh essentially you know he's 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 all depressed he wanders into a bar he, to use the washroom and he you know uh and he asks for uh three orange juices cuz he doesn't drink alcohol and uh you know there's a couple of guys in the bar you know he he's you know, the bartender asks him, how, asks him how he's doing and he tells the whole story. He pretty much summarizes the previous two issues. <laughs> so you can literally, ironically enough, you could pretty much in one page, in, in, he's giving a sob story to the this attractive bar waiter slash bartender. And uh, she, uh, you know, he tells, he explains what happened in the last two issues. And uh, she just basically says, well, I only asked because, you know, you got a tampon sticking out of your shoulder because he goes to the bathroom and he, he, he you know, he's, he's he, his, his bulletproof vest, which must be fairly, you know, high caliber, it, it prevented him from completely being killed. And he, but he's still bleeding and he uses a tampon to, to, to shove in the, the bullet hole. And it's, it's just insane. Plus he's got some three older guys in the bar. I mean, three older guys in the bar are sort of confronting him and saying, there ain't no super villains allowed in the bar. And he says, I'm not a super villain. I'm a superhero. And, and uh, he, you know, he, he sort of befriends them and, and then he literally starts crying. And, and I, boy, I, I got to give credit to Steve, Steve Pugue on the art here. I mean, wow, this looks exactly like John Cena. I mean, uh, you know, if you see John Cena, I mean, you see, you can see him cry on... on <laughs> I mean, this looks exactly like John Cena. This is so hilarious. And and who shows up at the demolition team from the previous issue? And, and they lost one of their own because one of their own got killed last issue. And one of, the, one of the older guys in the bar confront the demolition team ends up getting killed. And then... <laughs> and then Peacemaker ends up fighting them, taking them all down. And uh, ultimately, he goes back to his cabin. I mean, this is – I'm not doing this justice, by the way. I'm, I'm trying to summarize this quickly. But this art here is so fantastic. This is so well done, so well choreographed. When he's fighting the guys in the bar, 
you know, he kicks the crap out of them. He's kind of a loser, but he, he gets a little bit of redemption. He gets his mojo back a little bit by beating the crap out of the demolition team in the bar. And then he leaves the bar. He asks the waitress out and she says, no, she can't because she's going to be cleaning shit out of his stink, uh, shit, shit out of the bar sink later when all the other drunks show up. And uh, it's, again, it's, it's it's stupidly funny, but it, this feels like the Peacemaker. This could be a couple episodes of the Peacemaker Peacemaker series. This is absolutely worth getting, and I I'm going to be getting this. I'm fairly certain I'm going to be getting the hardcover of this because this is this is funny. This is well written. He goes back to his parole officer, and now Peacemaker. Now he's pissed off. He wants to go and he wants to rescue his dog. He wants to get. Bruce Wayne back. Bruce Wayne is the name of Peacemaker's dog, and he wants to get revenge on on the brain and Mala. But his 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 parole officer is this uh, is actually unbeknownst to him is his real name is Redby, and he's actually he's a parole officer that was appointed by your favorite uh, character, uh, Jace Amanda Waller, and and this uh, his parole officer actually kicks his ass because his parole officer says, "Look, no, you broke the law." I'm going to take you in. You broke parole. So no, I got to take you in. And so there's, there's a, there's like, there's a hell of a great, great fight scenes. And what makes the Steve, Steve Pugh's art makes the fight scene between his parole officer and Peacemaker so much fun because when Peacemaker gets hit in the face, my God, it looks like he's getting hit and it looks like it hurts. I mean, the, the expression, the detail in the, in the fighting and the fisticuffs and the, and just, just the way that it's laid out on the page, it looks really, really good. Very impressive. And ultimately, he's fighting. So he's fighting his parole officer. And then it's so funny. There's this stupid little bee that keeps flying around. One single bumblebee flies around and distracts Peacemaker, which allows his parole officer essentially to knock him out. And this parole officer's name is Red Bee. And he, his superpower is that he's got a good right hook and he's friends with only one bee. Not not a heart, not not a beehive, but just one bee. He's got his partner is is literally a bee. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Even Peacemaker thinks it's ridiculous. But it's funny if you you and you know what? In the hands of a less capable artist, this wouldn't be that funny. But it it it, it comes across as so funny because part of the humor is the expression. It, I'm I'm seeing John Cena. I'm, I'm I'm watching the Peacemaker HBO show. I'm watching it happen as, I, as I'm watching this. I, I, it's so easy to imagine the, the nonsense of this and, and the outfit of the red bee. I mean, he, he looks, it just looks ridiculous. He looks ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I can't repeat, I can't say some of the language here on YouTube because of the algorithm, but uh, there's a lot of swearing and there's a lot of, uh, the, the swearing itself is part of the humor. And uh, how he refer refers to the, the Nazis that the Red Bee fights in some of the flashbacks is quite hilarious to watch as well. His costume is ridiculous. Uh, but is it any more ridiculous than the Peacemaker's attitude and intelligence? Uh, there's a particular scene where uh, Amanda Waller, the Red Bee, is trying to make Peacemaker feel better and says that, uh, you know, Amanda Waller uh, puts you on one, put, puts me only on her most dangerous cases and she thinks quite highly of you. And then it shows a flashback of Amanda Waller talking to Red Bee saying, this next one will be easy for you, Richard. This guy's as about as sharp as a sack of wet mice. So... <laughs> <laughs> she really insults Peacemaker, uh, but Peacemaker doesn't know that. And but we, of course, we're in we're in on the joke because this is Peacemaker, and this is a, this is very much a, a laugh out loud. 
Uh, this this is funnier than the Night Terrors Joker this week. This is funnier. And probably if you're looking for straight up humor, this is absolutely the comic you want to get. And the good news is you can literally pick up this third issue of Peacemaker Tries Hard and you don't actually need to pick up the previous two issues. This is quite easy to understand what's going on because Peacemaker is sobbing into his orange juice at the beginning of the issue and tells you and summarizes what's happened in the previous two issues. It's a lot of fun and it's well worth the read. So the Red Bee is an actual Golden Age character. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it, you know, to Peacemaker's point, is like, okay, wait, you, so you got you control a swarm of bees? No, just one bee lives in my belt buckle. Like, it is, <laughs> it is the best of, you know, the, the absolute ludicrous nature of Golden Age comics, right? Like, it is, <laughs> when you stop and think about it, really dumb like this is really dumb uh but it is it is what it is and he does kick uh but so that that interaction was absolutely hilarious the other thing that was really funny like rocky said he goes into this bar and he goes right to the ladies room because he uses feminine um products to like stick in his bullet holes and what have you uh and even the guys in the bar are like is he using a feminine napkin as a bandage you know and he's like yeah, you know, we don't we don't allow supervillains in this bar. Oh, I'm a superhero. And so then when the demolition team, which I don't know if I talked enough about the demolition team showing up recently, because uh, the last time we reviewed the, the first issue, that week demolition team was actually in two books. I think they were in the Green Lantern book as well from Jeremy Adams. And they're they're just such a fun That's right. They're a fun <laughs> team. because uh, they're they're so kind of silly, you know, kind of the broadens age silliness. Uh, but they show up and they are supervillains, right? And and Peacemaker feels bad, you know, like Rocky said, he's kind of crying in his orange juice. You know, normal people would cry in their beer. He doesn't drink. He's going to cry in his orange juice. Uh, and he doesn't, yeah, I'm sorry that I, you know, killed the guy and whatever. Um, but what's what's funny is, you know, he doesn't want to, I don't want to be having this conversation. He doesn't want to, you know, confront them or what have you. Uh, and so he he tells the, the guy, the old man that was, uh, that was there. Uh, that, that was saying, Hey, uh, you know, no supervillains. And I like Delmont. Okay. You're on, you know, tell them and they'll get out. Well, they're supervillains. <laughs> so they just smack Delmont, just, you know, break his neck with one big punch. Uh, and he's, you know, peacemaker sitting out there at the bar. Well, Delmont's dead. <laughs> like, it's just, so, <laughs> it's just so tongue in cheek, right? Like, yeah. uh, it's so, it, yeah. This is just a laugh out loud, funny comic. Yes, it's for mature readers. It's got the black label label on it. It's not for the faint of heart, um, but it is so it is so fun. It is so funny. It is absolutely hilarious. Um, big fan of, of what's going on with uh, with Peacemaker. So uh, that being said, that does it for the single issues this week. There are a few uh, collections out. So Batman versus Robin hardcover. This collects the Batman versus Robin. Issues one through five, written by Mark Wade, uh, that came out of uh, or that led into uh, Lazarus Planet. Sort of Azrael, which collects the Sort of Azrael Dark Knight of the Soul and Sort of Azrael one through six. So that's the recent Dan Waters series that Rocky and I both really loved. Uh, DC versus Vampires All Out War Part One hardcover select uh, collects the James Tynan run. A DC versus Vampires All Out War. Which I I want to say it was three parts, um, uh, and uh, 
but it also has the one shot DC versus vampires hunters in it. Uh, there's also the Batman one bad day penguin hardcover, the Batman one bad day two face hardcover. And then there is a uh, Clark and Lex trade paperback that is in the DCYA line. So uh, those are in addition to the single issues that are out this week. So uh, if any of those sound interesting to you, uh, check them out at your local comic shop. So uh, all that being said, Rocky, time for your pick of the week. Uh, You're going to give the nod to one of the Night Terrors books or something else? Uh, Yeah. uh, I have to go – you know, I I feel like I'm going out of continuity here, but in in terms of just sheer entertainment value – uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to go with, I'm going to have to go with, uh, Peacemaker because it made me, it made me laugh. It, it was, it was just, it was just entertaining all around. And, and, and if I, so I'm going with Peacemaker, which is sort of an out of continuity black label. If I had a, my favorite Night Terror one in terms of just playing humor and fun, it would be Night Terror's The Joker. But, uh, what about yourself? Yeah, Night Terror's The Joker, probably the least... Uh, offensive or the most entertaining, however you want to look at it, of the Night Terrors books. Um, but actually, I'm going to go with uh, with Adventures of Superman. I, I was really impressed, really enjoyed what uh, what the creative team did. I thought Clayton Henry knocked it out of the park with uh, with the art. And then, yeah, even though again, it's not the story that maybe we wanted to have. It's it's the story we do have, and I'm enjoying what uh, what Tom Taylor's doing. It's uh, it's an interesting look at what, uh, who, how John Kent has evolved, how he's grown as a, as a character. So I'm going with that as my, uh, as my book of the week. All right. Uh, all right. That's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Again, happy Canada Day. Happy 4th of July for uh, everybody in Canada and the U.S. We appreciate you joining us as always. Don't forget to head over to YouTube and do a search for Rocky's channel and subscribe. It's Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Uh, make sure you ring the notification bell. Uh, leave some comments. We love interacting with uh, people over there. Conversely, if you want to check out all the uh, audio-only content from the Comic Source, especially coverage of San Diego Comic-Con coming up in a few weeks, be sure to go to wherever you get your podcast. Do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. So that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. We appreciate you joining us as always, and we will talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.